Good evening. Great to see you here this evening. We want to welcome those who are visiting with us. We appreciate your presence. Hope that you'll find the words tonight to be encouraging and uplifting and edifying as uh, you've, you've made the effort to come out on Sunday night to be with us. Uh, and we're, if you want to get out your Bibles or if you want to get out a pew Bible and open to the book of Joel, it's 760 in the pew Bible. Uh, we're going to be studying this book tonight, so I uh, hope you're ready for that. It's a short book. It's a simple book. Uh, so I think we'll be able to cover it very easily tonight uh, and go through and find what the message is of this book and how it relates to us today. Uh, I'm excited to study this book. The Minor Prophets have a lot of gold in them, and I think we can see that as we study them. All the prophets really have gold in them, and we saw that in Ezekiel this morning. Uh, so in Joel tonight, we're going to be digging into God's Word to try to understand what the message is for us in this book. Uh, this is a fascinating book. This is a, a unique book. When we look at the book of Joel, we see that Joel is not descriptive about himself at all. He's the son of Pethuel. That's the only description that we're given of him. Uh, he doesn't go on about his lineage or the time period that he's preaching in. In fact, we don't know when Joel was prophesying. Uh, he doesn't give us any hints to that. There's, there's varying opinions about it from 900 B.C. to 500 B.C., uh, you know, all over the place. But the message is timeless that he gives us. As we study into it, we start to see that it's a very simple message. This is a message that we can easily take in and understand. And it's a very important message that applies to each of us today. If I were to break down this whole book into three words, this is how I would break it down. Uh, the book of Joel is about desolation, invitation, and restoration. That's the three different sections that we find in the book of Joel. God brings desolation on His people for their sins. He provides them with an invitation to repent of their sins, to return to Him. And He promises to give them restoration if they will do that. That's a very simple breakdown of what this book is about. You can see how it's a powerful message that's found in this book in this short three-chapter book of Joel. As we start out the book and we get into chapter 1, we notice that it's about desolation. Uh, it starts off describing to us a desolation that is found in Israel. There is a swarm of locusts that come in. If you could just imagine walking outside and seeing 65 billion insects in the sky. Two football fields wide, 14 miles long. That's the largest locust swarm that we have on record. But imagine seeing something like that. This is a huge plague that has come upon Israel and that has made the land a desolate wilderness. These locusts feed off of all the vegetation on the earth. And when they leave, there's nothing left. There's no leaves. There's not even stems. They take away the majority of the plant in order to feed themselves. 65 billion insects. Think about that. That's ten times the population of mankind on the earth. 
in one group of insects moving across the land. Joel is looking at this this devastating event that has happened. And he tells the people of Israel, consider what has taken place. Has anything like this ever happened in the land? Have your fathers ever seen anything like this before? I want you to tell this to your children. And I want your children to tell their children about the desolation that God has brought upon the land for our sins. He says, Awake, you drunkards, and weep. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth. Verse 8. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Verse 11. In verse 13, put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers on the altar. He wants the people to consider the destruction God has brought about and be remorseful and repentant over it. He tells them to cry out to the Lord for help. Because it's from the Lord that this destruction has taken place. We find this interesting looking at it today. Do we blame God for catastrophes that happen to the United States of America? Well, there are some people who do. Uh, But in Israel, Israel's in a covenant relationship with God. So for Israel to have something devastating like this to happen, God has promised He would bring that plague about when the people sin. Otherwise, there would be peace in the land. There would be blessings in the land. There would be fruitful fields in the land. But when the people sin, He's bringing about desolation. And Joel says, look around you and see. This is judgment from God. We need to cry out to God. All you drunkards, your wine is gone. All you gluttons, there's no more food. In fact, he says in verses 16 through 20 of chapter 1, there's also a famine in the land. All the food is gone. The rain is dried up. There's nothing left but desolation in the land. Joel wants the people to wake up from this, to see that God is punishing them and that they need to cry out to God before it's too late. They're being consumed by God for their sins. And if they are going to survive, they need to turn to the one who is bringing about this desolation. But that's not all that he says about desolation. That's just chapter (laughs) 1. There's more. In fact, it gets worse. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, we find some of the most horrific words in Scripture. This is the horror section of Scripture. Joel says there is another day that is coming that is the day of the Lord that is going to be worse than anything like this that you've ever seen. He parallels the picture that's given to us of these locusts who come in and eat and devour everything to a picture of God's army coming down from the mountain heights. And they're this huge multitude that's able to run like horses. 
as fast as horses coming down the mountain. And when they run, they're going over terrain and everything, but they're not running into each other. They're completely disciplined and able to control their movements to that degree. This is a horrifying army that that is coming. They're scaling walls. And they're coming into the windows and the doors. It's a picture very similar to the locusts. And what the locusts would do is they would come in and just destroy. This army of God will come on the day of the Lord and cause this desolation. A garden of Eden will be turned into a desolate wilderness. That's the day of the Lord that is coming. The people need to be terrified of the Lord and the, des- the desolation that God can bring and He promises to bring in the future for His people, Israel. It says in verse 11 that He commands this army. He tells this army where to go, what to do, and how to destroy. This is how powerful God is. That He has this kind of control and this kind of ability to to desolate an entire nation like this. The people have received an understanding of the awesome power of God. And they ought to be terrified. But there's hope. When we keep reading, we get to verse 12 of chapter 2 and we start to see an invitation. Look with me at chapter 2 of Joel, verse 12. He says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And He relents over disaster. Who knows whether He will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind Him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Here God says to Joel, through Joel, yet even now, even though you've sinned, even though you deserve the desolation that is to come, if you will turn to Me, if you will return to Me with all your heart I will forgive you there is mercy there is grace if you will return to me with all of your heart notice in the text that God is looking for true repentance he mentions some external showing of repentance fasting weeping and mourning Signs of repentance should be evident in those who are turning to God and turning away from their sin. But then he says, rend or tear your hearts and not your garments. Tearing your hearts instead of your garments. He's pointing to the fact that in that culture, in that day, when they had sinned, you see this with David, they would tear their robes and they would sit in in sackcloth and ashes and show the anguish that they're in. But God says, I don't care anything about your show. I want you to fast. I want you to weep. I want you to mourn. Because what you've done is awful. But I want your hearts to be torn and not your garments. 
I want you to be effective deeper than some external showing. I want something inside of you to be ripped apart about what you have done against me. I want you to return to me. I want you to come back to me. Because I am gracious and merciful. Notice how in verse 13, you see that description of God that we've seen throughout Scripture over and over and over again. Moses sees this glory of God and it shows that he is merciful, he is gracious, he is abounding in steadfast love. He is faithful, he desires to forgive, he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He wants God's people to be with him. He loves his people and he's merciful toward them if they will just return with all their hearts. He will restore their fortunes. This is what we find as we keep reading. We get into the next section that starts in verse 18 and talks about God pitying His people and being jealous for them. He says, I am going to restore everything that you've lost. The years of famine, the years of of devastation that the locust has removed, all of this vegetation, God says... I'm going to put it all back together. I'm going to give you everything that you lost in verses 24 through 27. Your grain and your wine will overflow. You'll have more than you could ever need and you will be satisfied. I will restore my people. I will bring them the restoration that they need. I will bring them back by pouring out rain on the thirsty land and by dwelling with my people again. God makes this promise that those who repent and turn back to Him, He's going to pour out this blessing upon them and help them to have everything they need to be satisfied again. And He he keeps going with that. And like He parallels the locusts with the army that that is to come. He parallels these blessings from God, these physical blessings, with a different kind of blessing. And I want to look at this. Look at verse 28. It says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out My Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out My Spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape as the Lord has said, And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. In this text, he talks about pouring out more than just rain. He talks about pouring out his spirit. So like the rain allows that dry and thirsty land to be fruitful, he's going to pour out his spirit on all flesh and create fruitfulness and create a form of satisfaction that they've never experienced before. He's going to restore the people's 
relationship with Him. All the people who were once dead will now be made alive. This is the picture that He gives us and He mixes that with the day of the Lord. And He talks about how the judgment's still coming. It's funny how he, he goes into the restoration mode and talks about restoration, but then he also talks about the day of the Lord. He says, those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved on the day of the Lord. Those who rend or tear their hearts and call out to God will be saved from this judgment that was talked about in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. They will be saved from that judgment. He goes on and he talks about the judgment again in chapter 3. And he makes the point, I'm still bringing the judgment. I want to restore all those who will return to me. But I'm still bringing about the judgment against my enemies. I will save all those who take refuge in me but I will destroy all those who are evil and rebelling against me. I'd like to read the last three verses of Joel to finish up what the book is about. It says in verse verse 19, Egypt shall become a desolation and Edom a desolate wilderness for the violence done to the people of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land But Judah shall be inhabited forever and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood. Blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. The words here at the end point to the fact that he has got to bring about desolation against his enemies. All those who are associating themselves with Egypt and associating themselves with Edom, the two great enemies of God's people, will be destroyed. All those who persecute and and offend God's people will be destroyed. And God will avenge His people. But His people will dwell with Him in Zion forever. The eternal satisfaction is still promised by God. This is an amazing book. This book tells us about God's desolation and the promise of judgment against those who rebel against Him. It tells us about the invitation that He offers that all who would can return to Him. And He tells us about the restoration He will give them upon doing so. But not only is this an interesting book just to look at because of how interesting his relationship is with Israel and all the promises that he's making to Israel, but whenever we come to the New Testament, we find that the Spirit being poured out on all flesh took place. This is a key text in Scripture. I think I have gotten behind. Here we go. This is a key text in Scripture. Turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. In the book of Acts, we read about Jesus being lifted up. He has died, He has been crucified, He has been resurrected from the dead. He has spoken to His disciples and His apostles, and He has been lifted up and ascended up into heaven and given all rule and authority. And on the day of Pentecost, we find in Acts chapter 2, about 49 days after Jesus had died, we find that His disciples are speaking out and they're speaking in tongues and they're doing these miraculous signs, these wondrous works 
for all men to see. And they think that the disciples are drunk. But Peter stands up and says, no, we're not drunk. He reminds everyone in Acts chapter 2 and verse 16 and following about the prophet Joel and what he said. What God said He was going to do, that He would pour out His Spirit on all flesh and perform these wondrous signs for everyone to know that this is what's taking place now. And there's a mixture in that text about the judgment that is to come, the blood, the fire, the smoke, and the blessing of God upon His people, the pouring out of the Spirit. Both of those things are promised in Joel. And as we read through, we see in Peter's sermon that he talks about both of these things. That whoever calls on the name of the Lord can be saved, but all the people are guilty of a heinous sin. Jesus has been crucified, and all the people are guilty for murdering Jesus. But God invites the people to come, to return to Him. That's the whole point of pouring out the Spirit, is God's invitation to come, to be blessed, to have the the blessings of God poured out upon them. And notice how they respond to the news that they have crucified the Messiah they were waiting for. In verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. The people are cut to the heart. That sounds a lot like Joel, doesn't it? Their hearts are torn. They're they're feeling the guilt of their sins. It has penetrated them to know that they are the ones who have murdered God's Messiah who was sent to save them. And they ask, what can we do? And Peter tells them how to call on the name of the Lord. They call on the name of the Lord by repenting of their sins and by being baptized into Jesus Christ. And they receive the promised Holy Spirit. They receive the blessings. They were dead. Now they're made alive in Christ. The the relationship was gone. It was disintegrated. They were enemies of God. And now they have been made children of God. This is a fascinating story that we read in the book of Acts. That Peter would point to Joel on the very first sermon and say, God knew you would murder His Son. But through Him, He is bringing about the blessings that were promised in Joel. 
Through Jesus, God is able to pour out the Holy Spirit. God gave Jesus the Holy Spirit, and now He's pouring it out on all those who are willing to tear their hearts and call on the name of the Lord. That's the only way that they can avoid judgment. They know the judgment is coming. Just like Joel prophesied, Peter didn't mix words. He made it very clear that they're going to be judged for their sins. But God provided a way of escape, a way of salvation to them. This promise in Joel doesn't just apply to them though. It also applies to us. We have a promise of either judgment or blessing. The promises that are laid out in Joel still apply today. Israel was wiped out in 70 AD, but there is an expectation of judgment for all those who rebel against God, not just Israel. And there is also an expectation of salvation and blessing for all of those who call on the name of the Lord. But what does this mean for us? Well, it means that we can't just tear our garments. Have you ever torn your garments over your sins? Have you ever looked at yourself and thought, Oh man, I'm really bad. I've messed up so much. I need God's forgiveness. God, will you please forgive me? And then you, then you tear your, you know, get all upset about it, and you make this big show about it, and you, you may even come forward about it, and then you go home, and you wake up the next day, and you forget all about all that, because there's an opportunity to do what I want to do today. And nobody at church knows about it. That's, that's, that's tearing our garments, and then waking up the next morning and forgetting all about what we just did and what we just said or allowing those things to just come right back into our lives without being truly changed in our hearts. You know, it's really easy to act like I'm repentant when I've been caught in my sins. That's real easy. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'll never do it again. All the while, I'm just hoping that I can be forgiven so that I can keep doing it again. Okay? It's easy to do. We can do that. We become the best actors. We become better than those who are paid millions in Hollywood. Whenever we sin and we're caught in it, it's like, oh, well, I've got to stop this punishment from getting bad. I see that with my children. They do a good job of acting like they're remorseful sometimes. And then they go off and do it again. And it's like, okay, there's no remorse there. There's no real effect on your heart. It's not real. We can say, God, I hate that I've done that. But it's not real if we don't make a change. If we don't do things to prevent ourselves from committing the sin again we don't hold ourselves accountable for the sins that we're, we're rampantly sinning in our lives, it's not real. Why do we do that? 
Why, why don't we really be affected by our sins? Why don't we really have a broken heart for the things that we've done wrong? Do we laugh about our sins? Do we act like it's okay? Do we think that it's no big deal? It's easier for us to think lightly of our sins than it is to be broken by our sins. It's easier easier for us to tear our garments and to think that's good enough all the while our heart inside is stone and it's unaffected. We have to desire to have a broken heart for God. We have to let ourselves be broken for God when we sin. We have to see that sin. We have to regret that sin. We have to desire to put that sin out of our lives. And we have to hold ourselves accountable for the sins that we've committed. Because God is seeking tender hearts that will be broken and that will be affected by the truth. The only way that we can be truly broken is the way that these people were broken. In Acts 2. How were they broken? You crucified Him. You crucified Him. Why did Jesus have to be crucified? Because I sinned. I wasn't there yelling, crucify Him. But I'm the reason why He had to be crucified. Because without His crucifixion, without His sacrifice, there would be no hope for me. Does that affect us like it should? That's why we come together on the first day of the week to remember what Jesus did for us. Because every week we need to be broken because of our sins. We need to think, God... I did it again. I messed up again. What's wrong with me? I don't want to do this anymore. We need to think about ways that we can fix these things in our lives as we're sitting here, as we're considering what Jesus did for us. And we need to take it with us throughout the week. We can't let our hearts grow cold and hard thinking that our sins are no big deal. Because they're a big deal to God. He is patient. He is merciful. He is loving. He's willing to accept us. He's calling for us. He wants us to return to Him. He wants us to call on His name and be forgiven. And we can all do it. There's nothing stopping us. Nothing that hinders us from calling on the name of the Lord and being forgiven of all of our sins. We see in Acts 2 that the initial call is to repent of your sins and to be baptized for the forgiveness of those sins. And we can all do that. We can enter into the waters of baptism and cry out to God, please remove the sins of my flesh and apply the blood of Jesus for my atonement. And we can be resurrected to walk in newness of life. We can be saved from the judgment that's to come. 
if we'll only return to God with faith that He will forgive us, that He will make us new, and that He will bless us more abundantly than we deserve. He can do that. If you put on Christ, you have the blood of Jesus inside of you. You have the blood of Jesus applied to you so that you're forgiven of all of your sins. And live a life of tenderheartedness. Allowing yourselves to be broken for God. And remembering that He always gives us a second chance if we turn back to Him. Will you return to God? You need to make a change in your life. Please, make that change before it's too late. Please come if you need to as we stand.